0: The following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Now if you take your Bibles with me and turn to the first epistle to Timothy. And yes, we're finally going to get going with 1 Timothy, get back to 1 Timothy this morning. It's good to be back. from uh, being away for a couple of weeks, it's so good to be home and good to see all your faces again and appreciate your prayers uh, for, uh, for me while I was away, ministering in a couple of different places, and uh, it's great to be back. I'm going to uh, pick up reading at verse 12 and read down the verse 17 of 1 Timothy. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful Putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief, however, for this reason, I obtain mercy: that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise. be glory, excuse me, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for all that we have heard and all that we've been able to sing and praise to you. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to gather in this place. It is a great privilege and it's a grace, it's a mercy to us who do not deserve it. We thank you, Father. We thank you now that we can open up your holy word And we can give ourselves to uh, studying your word, to seeking to understand it. We pray for the help of your Holy Spirit, that your spirit would come, both upon the preacher and upon the hearers. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we finally return to our study today of Paul's first epistle uh, to Timothy, we come to a very wonderful passage. But since it's been a while, I want to spend a little bit of time very briefly reviewing the context uh, leading up to this. You remember that Paul is in Macedonia, and he left Timothy behind in Ephesus to instruct God's people and to set things in order in the church. And the first thing that Paul addresses in this letter is the problem of false teachers. False teachers had arisen in the church at Ephesus, and that was the focus of verses 3 to eleven, And Paul also hinted at a number of characteristics that marked this false teaching. And among them, as we saw in verse 7, is that their teaching involved a misuse and abuse of God's law, a failure to understand the proper place of the law and the proper relationship between the law and the gospel. Paul says in verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things they affirm. Well, it's at that point that we have one of these uh, Pauline digressions. And this is something that Paul often does in his writing. He He's talking about something, and then he says something, and he, it triggers a thought, and he goes with that for a while, and then he comes back to his main thought again. And this is what we have here. Uh, having mentioned that part of the problem with these men is their ambition to be regarded as teachers of the law, when they don't have a clue what they're talking about, now it's as if he says, now hang on a minute, and let me just say something about the law while I'm at it. And then we have this section that we considered last time, verses 8 to 11, in which Paul discusses the proper use of the law. Well, he ends that section at the end of verse 11, as he's wrapping up his thoughts about the law, by mentioning that the proper use of the law is is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Well, that sets him off on another tangent, another digression. And as if he says, and by the way, hang on a minute. While I'm at it, let me say something more about the gospel. And that's what he does in the passage that we've come to today, verses 12 to 17, and then after that, he's, it's, it's as if he says, okay, after he, okay, let's get back to where I started. And he's going to say a few more things about false teachers, particularly two of them, Hymenaeus and, and Alexander in verses 18 to 20. So there you have the flow of thought in the chapter. And so today we take up with his second digression. Paul breaks off to say something more about the gospel. And it's a wonderful, beautiful, glorious passage Of God's word. It contains one of the most beautiful gospel summaries in the New Testament. Verse 15 This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that statement is couched here within the center of a passage in which Paul is breaking forth in wonder, praise, and thanksgiving to God for how his own testimony and his own salvation is a great example. Of this truth that he declares in verse 15 he speaks about in this passage he'll speak about the wicked person that he was before his conversion I was formerly a blasphemer a persecutor and an insolent man he speaks also about how God had mercy on him and saved him and poured out his grace upon him in Christ he says but I obtained mercy And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And he also speaks of what the grace of God in this passage, he speaks of what the grace of God had made him in spite of what he had been. He was enabled and appointed to be a minister of the gospel, verse 12. And he was also made an example for others, an example to lost sinners of what the grace of God could do for them as well, verse 16. Now, I hope to open all of that up, God willing, next week. But this morning I want to focus on the assertion that stands at the very heart of all of this, at the very center of this passage. The gospel summary concerning which Paul's life provides us with such a powerful example. Namely, our focus this morning will be upon verse 15. So let me read it to us again. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Here we have a wonderful text that really contains the essence of the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you've had the question in your mind, what exactly is the gospel? What is the message of the gospel? Well, here is one of those wonderful texts that really gives us the gospel in a nutshell. Thomas Bilney was born in 1495. Around 1517 or so, he became a student at Cambridge University, and he was known as Little Bilney uh, because of his short stature. He had a scholarly bent, and he studied law at Cambridge, becoming a fellow of Trinity Hall in 1520, but his life was empty. He was full of guilt and despair, and he could find no peace. But then he obtained a Latin translation of Erasmus' Greek New Testament. And here is how he described what happened. He said, I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, oh, most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul, in First Timothy 1, and then he quotes our text. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He said, this one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive, did so exhilarate my heart being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed unto myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. Bildney was converted to faith in Jesus Christ and afterward he took the message of this text, uh, this gospel, and he spread it and he preached it to all he could and one of the persons converted through Bildney's witness was Hugh Latimer who became perhaps the greatest preacher and evangelist of his age, and eventually both, Bilney and Latimer, were burned alive by the persecuting Roman Catholic authorities of the time because of their devotion to the words and the message of this text we're going to look at today. Here is the gospel in a verse, and I want us to carefully consider this text in the time remaining this morning. Again, we read, this is a faithful saying, And worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds, of whom I am chief. I'm not going to take time today to open up that part of the verse. I'll save that for next week. But it speaks of how Paul thought of himself. Which caused him even more to marvel and to rejoice in this gospel. But this morning I want to open up the text under three simple headings. First, the person who came. Second, the reason that he came and then thirdly and much more briefly we'll consider the words by which this powerful gospel statement is introduced and commended to us. So notice with me first of all the person who came. Our text identifies him as Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world and here we're told several things about this person that we can there's a lot said just in those words. First of all this text in a somewhat incidental way, points to his preexistence. Notice we read that Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, came into the world. It doesn't say merely that he was born, but he came. He was not only born of the Virgin Mary, he came. And that's the way Jesus often referred to himself during his earthly ministry. He would say, I am come into the world. Or I came into the world. Now try to put yourself... Into the the position of the people of that day when they heard the Lord Jesus speak like that? I mean, what what would you think if I was speaking like that? I came into the world to do such and such. Think about it. Try to put yourself into their position. Who is this guy? This carpenter from Nazareth who looks like an ordinary guy like ourselves, but he keeps saying, I have come into the world. Sometimes he would say, I have been sent into the world. He is one who was sent into the world. One who entered it and came into it. And the implication is that he came from somewhere else. He came from another place. He already existed before he came into the world. The Old Testament prophets said that he would one day come and indeed he came into the world. And He came from where? Well, according to scripture, he came from the glory of heaven. Speaking of Christ as the Word, John says in John 1, 1, and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And he goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. You see, God the Son ever existed in a state of glory before he ever took to himself a human body and soul. He shared in the essential glory of the eternal triune Godhead from all eternity. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He is the eternal God, the Son, one with God and very God, the second person of the blessed Holy Trinity. You and I began our existence when we were conceived in our mother's womb, but he ever existed. In eternity, sharing in the fullness of the glory of the Godhead. And at the appointed time, he came into the world. As we read in chapter 3, verse 16 of this same epistle, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. As the prophet Isaiah predicted hundreds of years before his birth and as the angel declared to Joseph, behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Emmanuel is not merely a name he's called, it's a description of who he is. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. But not only do we have this implied reference to his eternal preexistence, secondly, we have reference to his title. We're told that Christ Jesus came into the world. The word Christ is not a surname, it's not that his dad was Joseph Christ and his mother was Mary Christ. It's not not a surname, It's, it's actually a title. When we speak of President Biden, President's not his name, it's a title. President identifies the office he holds and by which he functions. So it is with the word Christ. It's the title of the office he holds. It's a word that means anointed one or God's anointed one. It's the the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, the promised one, anointed by God to function as God had promised in the Old Testament that the Messiah would function in in the threefold capacity of prophet, priest, and king. He is that final prophet who was promised who would teach us the will of God. He is that great high priest of which all the Old Testament priests were but a picture and a type who not only came to teach us but to offer up himself as the final and perfect sacrifice and atonement for sin and having finished the work and being raised from the dead to go back to glory into the true holy place in heaven where he ever lives to make intercession for all who come to God by him and he is God's promised king who is now exalted to God's right hand from which he governs and preserves all who are trusting in him unto his heavenly kingdom and from which he must reign until all of his enemies are made his footstool and he comes again a second time to judge the world in righteousness. He is the Christ, the anointed one, the final prophet, priest, and king who was promised to come. But this one who ever existed in glory and who came into the world is not only identified by his title. Thirdly, we have reference to his human name. It is Christ Jesus who came into the world. It's not just some kind of Christ spirit that kind of floats around and comes down on Buddha and, and later comes down on Muhammad or Kari Krishna or this or that person at different times. No, the Christ is specifically identified as the man Jesus. It's the name assigned to him by God through an angel to Joseph. The name that was given to him at his birth. It means Jehovah saves or Jehovah is our salvation. And it's the name by which our Lord is identified in his true humanity. A true human, yet a sinless human conceived in the womb of a virgin. Not by ordinary procreation, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the enfleshment of God in time and space. The very God that we have offended by our sins in the person of his son, stepping down from his throne in glory. He was born and he lived and he walked on this sin-cursed planet as a real man. Once the tiny speck of an embryo in Mary's womb. A little child playing at his mother's feet a real man who grew up and developed through all the various stages of human life, knowing thirst and hunger, weariness and sleepiness, suffering and pain. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He became a real man who, according to Hebrews 4.15, is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Read the gospel accounts. And we see him as he grows from boyhood to manhood. We see him as he labors in the carpenter's shop of Joseph as a young man. We see him as he goes forth to preach. We see him mocked and despised by men. We see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. We see him before Pilate, where he's beaten and scourged. We see him as he begins uh, the trek up the hill called Golgotha, and we see him as he hangs upon the cross in bloody gore and agony, Crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see him dying under the curse of God, being made a curse for us as the sinner's substitute. Bearing our sins in his own body on the tree. And as you look at all of that, you have at least a glimpse of the awesome realities that are bound up in these simple words. Christ Jesus came into the world. He is the eternal God, the Son. He is the anointed one, the Christ, the prophet, priest, and king who was promised. And he is Jesus. He joined his divine nature to a true human body and soul and he came into the world and as a real man, he humbled himself and he suffered real pain and he shed real blood and he died a real death and he was raised from the dead bodily on the third day. This is what it means that Christ Jesus came into the world. But now this raises a question. Why did he do this? Why did he subject himself to all this? What's the reason for his coming and his living on this earth and his dying on the cross? Why did he come? Well, notice secondly in our text, we're given the reason that he came. And I think many people are confused about this. They're confused when it comes to this simple question. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? There's a website that I look at sometimes that puts out questions for discussion. It may be a philosophical question, a religious question, an economic question, something of that that nature. And and it puts out the question and it's called Quora Digest and different people give answers and then it rates the answers and it will have the top answer to this particular question. Well, some time ago, this is the question that was put out. Why did... Christ come into the world and the response that was chosen as the top answer it gave several, several reasons Jesus supposedly came into the world. All of them have absolutely no biblical basis at all. For example things like he said he came to make people free from all authority. or he came, In other words he came so that human beings might discover the law written in the heart and say I am the way, the truth, and the life. As you can see, this was like a new age Jesus here. He came to work for the liberation of people from oppressive, political, religious, social, economic, and ecological structures. This was the top answer. But with all of these biblical answers, the one answer that was glaringly missing is the one that's given here in our text. Why did Jesus Christ come into the world? It's shocking when you think about it. The text says Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. There it is. He came to save sinners. And there's two key words here I want to focus on. We have the word save and we have the word sinners. And let's consider them in reverse order. First of all, we have sinners. This is the description of the kind of persons Christ came to save. He came to save sinners. Now, let's try to imagine that this is the first time any of us have ever heard the gospel. Now for someone here today, that may be the case. But if not, let's imagine that it is. And so far, you've only heard me read this much of the verse. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save. But then I pause at that point, and I can imagine every year perking up to hear the next words, every heart anxiously asking, who did he come to save? Who is it? Who is qualified for this salvation? What qualifications must I have? Just imagine if we'd never heard the message before, the fear we might have that the qualifications required are beyond what I could ever attain. But then what good news? How wonderful to hear that one word by which those Christ came to save are described. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners, he came to say. But of course, for most of us, this is not the first time we've heard this. And someone might say, well, Pastor Smith, everybody knows that Christ came to save sinners. That's just a well-known fact. Well, my friend, yes, perhaps. But I I would argue that it's a fact that's very rarely truly understood. There are many people who have heard it and they can repeat it, but the reality is they've never truly understood it. And believed it. You see, many people, though they may say, yes, Christ came to save sinners, really believe that he came to save good people. He came to save people who, though they may have made some mistakes in life and may have done some wrong things and sinned, they're trying to do their best. They seek to live respectable lives. They, they may attend a place of worship from time to time. They, they give to the poor and, and say their prayers, though they fall short of perfection as we all do, yet at heart, at heart, they're good people. They try to do what they can to do right. This is the kind of person who can be saved. If you're doing that, Even though you may fail, sometimes Christ will save you. But surely, Jesus didn't come to save people who are sinners and nothing but sinners. You see, the common idea that people have, even many who attend church, is that there must be something good about me to recommend me to God's favor and to qualify me for salvation. Surely, God didn't send his son into the world to save people that he views as sinners and nothing else. It's sinners who are trying to do right. It's men and women who fall at times, yes, but are seeking to please him and to do good to others. He sent Christ to save people like that. There must be something worthy in me, something deserving about us for Christ to save us. That's the way most people think. But no, my dear friends, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save sinners without any other qualification. And he didn't come into the world to save anybody else. But sinners. And he viewed those sinners as sinners and nothing more. And when this salvation comes to them, it comes to them as sinners, just as they are with no other qualifications necessary. And listen to me, he came to to save real sinners. A real Savior came into the world to save real sinners. When Martin Luther at one point was under a painful sense of his own guilt and sinfulness, he said to the man he was confessing to and seeking help from, oh, but my guilt is so great, I cannot believe that Christ can save me. But the man who was trying to help him rightly said this in response, if you were only the semblance of a sinner, then Christ would be the semblance of a Savior. But if you are a real sinner, then you can rejoice that a real Savior has come to save you. Dear friends, show me a person who says, Yes, I admit I'm not perfect, but overall I'm a good person. I've always tried to live a good life. Show me a person who says that or who feels that way about himself and he doesn't need a Savior. As I think it was Spurgeon who said, Such a person is a sham sinner. And a sham savior will be enough for him. But real sinners who truly know and feel themselves to be sinners need a real savior. And praise God for such sinners, such a savior has been provided. Today, I bring glad tidings to all guilty sinners here in this place this morning. Christ Jesus really came into the world. And he presented a real atonement with real blood to take away real sins and to save real sinners. Real sins such as drunkenness, theft, profanity, fornication, adultery, sodomy, pornography, Sabbath-breaking, lying, cheating, cruelty, murder, hypocrisy, blasphemy, and things that I might be embarrassed to describe in detail in a public setting like this. You name it, all of these sins, however many, However dark they may be, all can be blotted out in a moment by a real Savior who has come to save real sinners, even the chief of sinners, from their sins. But I don't mean to insinuate that this word sinners only applies to those who are guilty of what might commonly be called more gross outward sins. No, remember, there are no distinctions in our text Or in this term, the word sinners includes all kinds of sinners. And there are some whose sins outwardly may seem to be small. They've been raised up to be a moral person, perhaps a religious person. They've been hedged about by various restraints. They've never indulged in in, uh, some of the most heinous forms of depravity. Their sins are more refined and secret and inward. But it doesn't matter. They're still sinners. Don't let anyone think, oh, if I'd only been a blasphemer and a persecutor like Paul was before his conversion, then I could be saved. Maybe I could be one of those Christ saves if I'd been an adulterer or a murderer. I'm afraid I haven't sinned enough to be included in those Christ came to save. As crazy as that sounds, people can sometimes think that way. But no, my friend, if you're a sinner at all, of whatever kind, you qualify. It doesn't matter what kind of sinner or what kind of sins you've been guilty of. The Bible says there is none righteous, no not one. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet all have not sinned in the same ways. And it takes the same grace of God to save the most outwardly respectable sinner in the world as it does to save the most openly profligate sinner in the world. Remember, remember, sin is not just something a person does. Fundamentally, it's a matter of the heart. For example, remember the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet, which among other things means you're, you're never to desire to sin. According to God's word, to desire what God forbids, even if you never perform the act, is itself sin. Why? Because it reveals who you really are on the inside, in the heart. It reveals a depraved and defiled heart, even if it never breaks forth into the action. Lust is sin, envy is sin, jealousy is sin, discontentment is sin, gossip is sin, unrighteous anger and bitterness in your heart toward another person is sin. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he, the scripture says. Pride, arrogance, self-righteousness is sin, selfishness is sin. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Furthermore, we must remember that sin is first and foremost and essentially a wrong relationship to God, your creator, the God who made you, the God who gives you life, the God who keeps your heart beating, the God who's given to you everything that you have. The greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart And with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the failure to do that is sin. The failure to live your life for his glory and for his praise is wicked sin. Really, when you boil it all down, sin is self-rule, self-autonomy, living for yourself. And listen, the particular forms in which your sin has been expressed, that's not the real issue. God's word says in Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's sin, going your own way. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Notice it doesn't say we turned everyone to adultery. That's not true of everyone. It doesn't say we turned everyone to drunkenness or to drug abuse. That wouldn't be true of everyone. It doesn't say we've turned everyone to fornication or to witchcraft or to stealing or to profanity or sexual perversion. That wouldn't be true of everyone, at least not in their outward forms. No, but it does say we have turned everyone to his own way. You see, the common denominator of all men by nature is that we go our own way. Self-autonomy, self-rule, and that's the real essence of sin. It's been expressed in this way. The essence of sin is that I make myself in a host of ways the center of the universe. Now that makes some people porn junkies, fornicators and thieves and drug pushers, while others are nice, well-mannered, religious, self-righteous people who live outwardly moral, Lives and may even go to church but still at the bottom of it all they rise no higher than this they are living unto themselves and going their own way and in God's eyes as long as he's not supreme upon the throne of your heart as the chief object of your love and your devotion then your life is nothing more than a life of idolatry and rebellion a life of sin that will end in eternal damnation in hell all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned everyone to his own way. But the good news of the gospel is that God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he came to save all kinds of sinners. There's no limitation to a particular kind. And if he saves you, he will make you to know and to feel yourself to be a sinner who deserves nothing but God's wrath. Now, if you're not a sinner, if you insist that you're just fine and okay, then this gospel will mean nothing to you. It has no good news for you because you don't need a Savior. As Thomas Watson put it, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. But if you're a sinner, a real sinner of whatever kind, there's no reason to shut yourself off from the hope of the gospel because you're just the kind of person that Christ came to save. We've considered the word sinners. Now let's look secondly at the word save. He came into the world to save sinners. And that word means to deliver, to rescue. He came to rescue sinners. Now what does that mean? He came to rescue us from what? From sin. First, he came to rescue us from the guilt and the punishment of our sins that is hanging over us. Those he saves will never have their sins laid to their charge in the courtroom of heaven. They're all forgiven. Fully and freely pardoned. And they will never suffer in hell the punishment they deserve for their sins. Their bad record is blotted out of the book of God forever. And in the eyes of God's law, they're counted as righteous. Now, how in the world could God ever do that and still be holy in the righteous God that he is? It's because of Jesus Christ. Christ came to act as the representative and the substitute for those he came to save. He perfectly kept all the precepts of God's holy law for us in his life. And he fully endured and exhausted the penalty and the punishment for sin that was due to us by his bloody suffering and death on the cross. And having finished that work, God raised him from the dead testifying that his atonement was accepted and it was sufficient. God put the sins of those who believe on Christ to Christ's account and punished him in our place. And Christ's perfect righteousness is put to our account and we're accepted as righteous in his sight. And all of this the moment we first put our trust in Jesus Christ. God's word says, He who believes on Jesus Christ is not condemned. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Secondly, Christ not only, praise God, rescues us from the guilt and punishment of our sins, he also came to rescue us from the dominating, enslaving power of sin over our lives. Praise God, we're, we're, not, we're not just forgiven of all our sins only to be left there to to wallow in the hog pen of sin, continuing in sin. No, when a sinner is joined to Christ by faith, he not only has his bad record cleared in heaven because of Christ's death as the sinner's substitute, but he also has his bad heart changed on earth. The Holy Spirit comes to live within us, to change us and to enable us to begin more and more to live a new life of devotion to, to our Savior for his glory and praise. And thirdly, the salvation Christ gives sinners also involves one day being saved from the very presence of sin and from all remains of sin and all the effects of sin forever in the world to come. Those he saves, he keeps to the end, where in glory they'll be perfectly free from all sin, spotless and pure, with glorified bodies and souls, reigning with him and rejoicing and serving him in the new heaven's and upon a new earth for all eternity. You see, fourthly, this salvation is not only a salvation from something, salvation from sin. It's a salvation to something. It's a salvation that reconciles us to God, our loving creator. That's the highest good. That's the greatest blessing of salvation. It's God himself known and enjoyed as our reconciled father, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, my dear friends, this is the reason that Christ was born into the world on that night long ago in Bethlehem. This is the reason he came into the world. He came into the world to save And he came to save sinners. What a wonderful gospel this is. What a a privilege. What a blessing to be able to preach such a gospel to such a needy world. If only every person here this morning in this place would truly believe it. And receive this Christ freely offered by God to you. Receive him for yourself. Well, We spent the bulk of our time on this statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now let me draw your attention to the words by which this statement is introduced and commended. Look again at the text. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul Commends this declaration by telling us that it's a faithful saying. This is something that was almost like a confessional statement in the churches. This is something that was stated as a summary of the gospel. It was a faithful saying. There's several of those you'll find uh, in his his writing to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. We're using the same kind of language. He tells us it's a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance. Now let's notice two things here. First of all, we're told that it is a faithful saying. In other words, it's a saying that is trustworthy and reliable. A saying full of truth and nothing but truth. It's never to be doubted. It's a sure, certain, trustworthy word that can be depended on. The full reliance of your soul can be placed upon it and ought to be placed on it. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And if I'm a sinner, praise God, that includes me. Paul's concerned to commend this truth to anyone who might be tempted to doubt it. You see, as soon as a person comes under the sound of the gospel, his or her unbelieving heart begins to whisper, well, it can't be true. That's too good to be true. Also, the devil or his emissaries, as it were, Joins in and says, don't believe it. Don't believe it. It's presumption to believe this for yourself, maybe for others, but not for you. Don't believe it. It's too good to be true. Well, my friend, answer the devil and your own doubting heart with God's inerrant, infallible word. This is a faithful say. Yes, it's good, but it's just as true as it is good. And it would be too good to be true, if it wasn't God himself, the God who cannot lie, who said it. But since God says it, you can count on it. You can count on it. And then secondly, the text says that it's a saying worthy of all acceptance, of all acceptance. It's worthy to be accepted. It's worthy to be received into your very heart. It's worthy to be laid hold up for yourself. It's worthy to be applied to yourself by faith. It's worthy of all acceptance and all of the reception and all of the confidence that anyone could ever give it. You can take it to the bank. You can never believe it too strongly, too certainly, too firmly. It's worthy to be fully and completely received as truth and to be trusted in. You can cast the weight of your soul upon it. Your eternal destiny, you can cast upon this truth. If I'm a sinner, no matter how great a sinner, I can be assured that Christ came to save the likes of me. And if I'm willing to be saved by him, and I'm trusting myself to him to do so as my only hope, I can safely rejoice that he has, and he will save me. This is wonderful good news. It's worthy of all the trust you could ever get. What about you this morning? We've seen that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now the question is this, has Jesus saved you? Have you been made a partaker of this salvation? Do you know yourself to be a sinner? And are you trusting Christ alone to rescue you from your sins have you been saved by Jesus Christ if not let me ask you my friend wouldn't it be wonderful wouldn't it be wonderful if before this day is over you are able to say yes Christ has saved me and listen there's no reason why you can't be saved this very day it's not about cleaning yourself up trying to do better Christ came to save sinners. If we could save ourselves, he wouldn't need to save us. He's the one that cleans us up. He's the one who helps us and strengthens us to begin to live a life of devotion to him. He's the one that deals with our sins and deals with our bad, wicked hearts. We come to him as nothing but a lost sinner. That's it. I have nothing to commend to you, Lord, but my sin, my undeservedness, my unworthiness. And therefore, you can be saved this very day. The only thing that would keep you from being saved is your own unbelief, your own unwillingness to be saved, or the determination to keep your sins rather than to be saved from them. On Christ's part, He stands ready and willing to save all who come to him for mercy. And all he asks that you do is to lay down your arms of resistance against him. Give up this foolishness of going your own way and being your own Lord. Give it up, running to Jesus Christ for mercy, to save you from it. Look to him. Call out to him right now, today. Entrust your life and your soul to Jesus Christ as your prophet to teach you, your priest who made atonement for your sins and your king to govern and to keep you and to reconcile you to God and to bring you safely all the way to eternal glory. Come to him just as you are and he has promised that he will by no means cast you out for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes on him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever, whoever believes, the scripture says, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Amen. Praise his name. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for this, this little gem of a verse that's embedded here As the Apostle Paul gives his own personal testimony of what your grace had done for him, that amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I pray for your people today that we might believe these things afresh with a greater certainty and confidence. And I pray for those among us, Lord, who are outside of Christ, have mercy upon them. Draw them to your Son. Oh, Lord, give them grace to believe that what your word says is absolutely true and trustworthy, and they can cast their eternal destiny, their whole being, soul, and life upon this truth that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, including them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.